Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, whether you are in this room or joining us online. I'm so glad you're here for Pentecost Sunday. Happy birthday to the church today. I uh, was thinking this week, there's one thing I think we all share in common, and that's our love for story, a good movie, a good book, a good Netflix series. I've been into historical fiction lately, so fiction, nonfiction. I just think, man, we, something we share is a love for story. And my uh, family, I don't know about you, but my kids love to ask me, they say, can you tell me a story from when you were a kid? And uh, so, you know, we have our standard ones. And then this past week, we were with Grandma and Grandpa, so they had some that my kids hadn't heard yet. And uh, summer begins the time when we always go up north to northern Wisconsin with Tim's family, and we build a campfire, and we sit around, and we, we, we tell stories. We tell stories that we've told so many times that everybody knows them by heart, but we rehearse them nonetheless. It's like reviewing the tribal history over and over, and we love it. And uh, some of these stories, if they're um, anything like the stories in your family, some of them are downright entertaining, <laughs> quite hilarious. But, but here's the thing. When, when you're living your life in real time, you don't think of these things as stories. You kind of think of them as just current events or the map of your day. You don't think of them in story form until later. But the current events that you are living in real time eventually become the stories that you tell. So the seasons of your life, the decisions that you make, once they're behind you, you kind of like reclassify them. Now it's a story that you tell. It's a story that you either tell or you hope no one will tell, <laughs> depending on what it is, right? And so our question today is this, what story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? Because today is Pentecost. It's the day we remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came, and each and every person today who is a follower of God in the way of Jesus is indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit resides within you to be your comforter, to be your guide. And the question is, what does it look like to be guided by the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to be guided by the Spirit of God? What does that mean? This month, I hope we can kind of um, demystify some of what gets sideways in people's heads sometimes when we talk about being guided by the Spirit. I was hanging out with a dear friend recently, and, and she just kind of admitted, she said, I hear people talk about hearing from God, I don't think I've ever heard from God. And I get what she's saying, because, you know, most people would say, I've never audibly heard from God. But what does it mean to be guided by the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And I hope we can kind of demystify that a little bit this month as we talk through and think through what it means to be guided by God's Holy Spirit, because sometimes it can sound like something that is um, just for the super spiritual, like that's for the, the mystics and the contemplatives only, 
Maybe that's just for like the Enneagram fours or the empathic people. They're the ones who talk in those ways. But here's the truth. Everyone is guided. Everyone is being guided. And maybe a good question to ask is just, you know, who or what is guiding me? Who or what is guiding me in life? Being guided by God's spirit is often just simply about creating a little space in your life to prayerfully ask some questions of yourself before God, to ask God some questions in light of who you are and where you are. So this month, we're looking at five questions. These questions come from a book. It's called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And we're going to be looking at these five questions because here's the thing. The idea is that good decisions in life, decisions that are in step with God's spirit, often come when we carve out a little space, ask some good questions, answer those questions honestly, and act accordingly. Often that is, that is how that works. And how you react or how you respond to things in your life that are unwanted, things that come into your life that you didn't choose, that you wouldn't choose, that you don't want, your reaction and your response is a decision. And it's your decision to make. It's your choice. So the reason we're posing questions is because often good decisions are connected to good questions. And often our decisions are only good as either the questions we ask or the questions we never thought to ask. And every counselor in the room is probably nodding their head. Counselors know the power of a good question. I remember when I was in high school, I was, I was dating this guy, and we did not share the same values. And my youth leader at the time, Colleen, I can remember sta- exactly where we were standing, uh, in my kitchen. And I was telling her a story about our relationship, and she actually said to me this question. She was like, Suze. Is that what a healthy relationship looks like? And I still remember her question to this day. The power of a good question. I, uh, it was, you know, at that juncture, that season in my life, it was kind of a turning point. It was a turning point in my life um, towards a better decision whose name is Tim. (laughs) And, uh, Good questions are an important piece of of good decisions. So if we can create some space to ask good questions and be honest in our answers about them and then to act in accordance with God's Spirit's leading, we're going to make better decisions and we're going to have that sense of God guiding us in our lives, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So last week... I suggested that together this month we memorize a verse. It's kind of like the theme verse for this series. And it's Proverbs 27, 12. Will you say this verse with me? The prudent see danger and take refuge. But the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And last week we talked about how when the Bible uses the word prudent, it means like the, the shrewd, the crafty, the wise, 
the wise, the prudent, the cre- you know what they do? Those are people who when they see danger up ahead, they take refuge. The prudent connect the dots. The prudent are people who know that the decisions I make today kind of have a way of like uh, smuggling themselves into my relationships tomorrow. Prudent people are people who connect the dots. Like if I sign the lease, if I purchase this today, the bill is going to show up next month. The prudent connect the dots. They don't just sign the paper and then the next month go, oh, what was I thinking? Right? The, the prudent, they see danger, and what do they do? They take refuge. But the simple, and when the Bible uses the word simple there, it's talking about like, the simple is like the naive. The simple is the person who falls for anything. The simple is the person who, when they see danger, they don't take refuge. What do they do? The simple, they just keep going. There's danger, they keep going, they pay the penalty. Another translation says, they suffer for it. So even though these questions that we're going to be looking at together, even though they're simple, even though they're pretty straightforward, these questions put us in conflict with that inner salesperson inside of us the inner sales associate that kind of lives inside our heads. The sales associate in your head and in my head wants us to act now, to decide fast, to focus on the immediate rather than the ultimate. The sales associate does not want for me to connect the dots. And sometimes the sales associate can talk me into some pretty stupid decisions. And this verse is like a reminder to look beyond the moment, to pause and create a little space, to ask some questions, to look and to see the potential danger, and if needed, to take refuge or to at least create space. Maybe the answer is still yes, but let's pause and ask a couple questions before making that decision. Asking those questions is just, it's the idea of slowing down, creating some perspective. So last week we said the first question was this, am I being honest with myself really? Because the hardest person to lead is the person in the mirror. And the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror. So we got to start with like, when we're faced with a, a decision, whether it is financial, relational, vocational, any decision of consequence in life, pause. Sales associate is trying to sell me. Just sign the papers. Just just move forward. Just fast. Pause. Am I being honest with myself? Really? That's question one. And then today, question two is what story do I want to tell? It's kind of the story, uh, it's kind of the question of, uh, of legacy. Like whenever this decision becomes a story that I tell, what story do I want to be telling? When this season of life or this relationship or this business transaction is behind me in the rearview mirror, when it is reduced to a story that I tell, what's the story I want to be telling? What do I want other people, what stories do I want other people (laughs) to even tell about me when I'm gone? So the good news is in, ve- in so very many instances, you do get to decide. 
God has given us incredible um, amount of choice in many, many areas. And, and even when bad things happen to you, things that are unwanted, that you did not choose, even then, you get to decide how you're going to respond, how you're going to react to that unwanted thing that's come your way. So in that way, you are writing a story. Is it a beautiful one? What kind of story is it? Uh, in the serenity prayer, famous prayer that we'll often start our services with here, uh, used in a lot of recovery groups, in the serenity prayer, we pray this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. We certainly know there are those. And, and grant me also, though, the courage to change the things I can. That's what we're talking about this month, the courage to change the things I can. And then, you know, the wisdom, the wisdom to know the difference. Changing the things that you can is what we're talking about. Taking hold of those places of like your God-given agency. So in the Hebrew scriptures, there's a famous story in the Old Testament, in the Bible, towards the end of the book of Genesis, about a guy named Joseph. Story so famous that it actually was made into a Broadway musical, so many of you probably already know much of the story. But it is the story of a 17-year-old named Joseph, around 17, 1800 B.C. He is the 11th of 12 children, and he is his father's favorite. And so as his father's favorite, it creates this sort of dynamic of jealousy with his 10 older brothers. The fires of jealousy actually get so strong against Joseph from his older brothers that they decide they're going to kill him. In the end, they, uh, they decide not to kill him, but rather to sell him. <laughs> so it's like, like a touch more merciful and much more profitable <laughs> to them. They decide to sell him instead. So this is his life, okay? This is his father's favorite, wealthy home. His brothers turn on him. Don't kill him, but sell him. Now think of the brothers at that moment in the story. They've sold their brother. They go home and they tell their father that actually, no, he was killed by wild animals. So now they have a lie to live with. Not a story they want to repeat. Not a story they would be proud to tell. And Joseph ends up kind of on this auction block in Egypt. And this military officer named Potiphar purchases Joseph to be his slave. Now, at that juncture, Joseph has another decision to make. Is he going to run? Is he going to do what most slaves would probably do, which is like do the bare minimum with the worst attitude possible that he can get away with? Or is he going to like give this slave thing all that he's got? He has a choice. He has a choice in this moment what to do. It's kind of an interesting dilemma. He's like a rich kid. He grew up as his father's favorite. And anybody reading the story of Joseph is going to look at it and go, oh, Joseph is a victim. Absolutely, he is. Unjust, unwanted circumstances. And yet, 
he still has a decision to make. Is he going to live like a victim? In other words, his reality is absolutely one thing, and we should always be clear about the reality. The reality is one thing, but his identity, his identity, how he sees himself, is something no one can take from him, even when he's enslaved. His reality may be as a victim, but how he sees himself is his choice. How he chooses to see himself, how he chooses to respond to unwanted, unjust circumstances. And you guys, that is his superpower. And that's your superpower too. That actually, like the circumstances of your life, that's not where you live. Where do you live? In your mind, in your heart. God's given you the ability to actually see a set of circumstances in your mind and in your heart differently than how others might define it looking from the outside. And here's what makes this story of Joseph so relatable to everybody. None of this is Joseph's fault. It's not Joseph's fault. Like somebody else took control of his story. His story, just like parts of your story, is like kind of hijacked by evil (laughs) and selfish people. And it would be very, very easy for him to just throw his hands in the air. Like, why try? Why care? Why bother? That is always the temptation when someone else decides our story in a bad direction. And yet Joseph refuses to kind of throw up his hands in the air and do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he decides to do is to go serve Potiphar's house as if it were his own. That's a good story. And eventually what happens is Potiphar notices and gives Joseph more and more responsibility, puts him in charge of the whole household. It's like this incredible story that Joseph is telling. He's like, once I was kidnapped once. I was sold twice. I was a victim but decided not to live like a victim. That was the story Joseph decided. And it's interesting that uh, even in that, uh, you know, if you know the story, um, what happens over time is his story, he's making these, you know, good choices in this bad set of circumstances. His story kind of intersects with somebody else's story, right? Potiphar's wife. If you know the story, Potiphar's wife decides Joseph, she wants Joseph to be her lover, or one of her lovers. We don't know for sure. But she wants him to sleep with her. And she comes on to him. Now, Joseph is probably like 19, 20 years old when this happens. And it's interesting when you read the story because, again, Joseph is in this set of circumstances. Unwanted, um, he has to decide. He has to choose how he's going to respond. And essentially, this is what Joseph says. He's like, Hey, Mrs. Potiphar, you know, I came to this land as a slave, and your husband bought me. I had no rights. I had no future. Your husband purchased me, and I've done my best to serve him and to serve God and to serve you. And through hard work and God's help, I've gained his trust, and he's put me in charge of this whole household. And then Joseph, this is... uh, Now, this is like exactly the quote from, you know, from the Bible. 
that Joseph says to, to Potiphar's wife, with me in charge, Joseph says to her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It's almost like Joseph is asking questions out loud, rehearsing a couple of stories before Potiphar's wife. Like he is basically saying to her, which of these stories would I rather tell later? Do I want to tell the story that says, your husband gave me this incredible opportunity. I never dreamed it could happen. And I was faithful to him, and I was faithful to the God who has been with me and watching over me this whole time. Do I want to tell that story, story number one? Or number two, story number two is, you know, your husband gave me this incredible opportunity. I never in a million years thought this was this could ever come my way. So I took advantage of his trust, and I had an affair with his wife. Which, which story do I want to tell later? Because when the decision that you're in the middle of gains a little time and space, it becomes a story that you tell. So what story do you want to tell? And Joseph, of course, decided, he decided the better, the, the better of the two stories. He did the right thing. But Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to violate her sexually. And so Joseph then ends up in the dungeon, in prison, in Pharaoh's dungeon. And yet the story even there, like another, it's just like he is in another unjust, unfathomable, terrible, unwanted, not of his choosing set of circumstances. But his story isn't over, and when, when you find yourself m metaphorically or actually there, your story isn't over either. And often it's, um, it's even those moments of decision, how we choose to see things, that allows the story to take different directions. When we, when we hit that rough patch and it feels like, gosh, this current chapter is the whole story. It's actually just a chapter in the story. So. For Joseph, he's in prison, right? And he, again, starts doing kind of like what he did in Potiphar's house. He starts helping. He starts serving. Pretty soon he's, like, running the whole place. And then many years go by. And we, I mean, we shouldn't miss that, right? <laughs> many years <laughs> go by. And then Pharaoh has this dream. Such an incredible story of, of, of legacy and decisions and Pharaoh has this dream, and Pharaoh thinks, this dream must mean something, and I need someone to interpret this dream. None of his magicians can do it. And so they bring Joseph in, and Joseph says, the God I serve can interpret this dream for us. And he gives credit to God, and then he says, what this dream means is that Egypt is going to have seven years of incredible grain harvest. Grain is going to be overflowing, which was a big deal because it was the, the staple of the diet of the people in the ancient times. And so, like, no grain, people starve. So the first part of the dream is seven years, it is going to be an amazing harvest. It's going to be overflowing. 
second part of the dream, then they're after the seven years, there's going to be a famine. And the famine is going to be so severe and it's going to be so harsh, Joseph says, that people are going to forget that there ever was a time of plenty. And after he says this, you know, you would almost imagine Pharaoh being like silent, you know, or, uh, you know, but actually what Pharaoh says to Joseph is this. He says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise with you. You shall be in charge of my palace. All my people are to submit to your orders. Only the respect, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So essentially Pharaoh makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. And once again, Joseph is, is in a spot where he decides to devote himself to what is before him there. And so for seven years, he stores up grain. And then sure enough, a famine comes. And people's cupboards begin to become bare. And they start making their way to Egypt to get grain. And through his decisions, he's like, he's a whole nation. And when you read the story, which I'd encourage you to do, there's this theme over and over and over. It's like this repetitive theme. And God was with Joseph. And God was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph, and God was with Joseph, and God is with you, God is with you, and God is with you, and the Spirit was with him, and he is responding to God in this story, and so eventually what happens is Joseph's brothers come, they come to get grain, and Joseph recognizes them immediately. But they don't recognize him because he's like 30 years old now and they haven't seen him since he was maybe 17 or something. And in the end, Joseph reveals his identity to them. His 10 older brothers are just, they're speechless. They, I mean, they're begging him for mercy. They're assuming he's going to do to them <laughs> what, he, what they had done to him. But again, Joseph doesn't react. He doesn't return hate with hate. He actually creates some space and he decided against that gravitational pull towards bitterness. He decided against that. He decided his life would be different. He decided that wasn't the story worth telling. And that's why we keep telling his story today. Right? Joseph decided that revenge would not be a part of his story, that bitterness would not be a part of his story. He decided that even if others made him a victim, he would not see himself as one. Not only does he go and rescue like Egypt from famine, he rescues his brothers. He brings them to Egypt. It's absolutely a story worth telling, which leads us to you, to me, like what is the story you want to tell? What story do you want to tell when the circumstances you're facing, the decisions you're facing, 
are in the rearview mirror. I, I attended a funeral recently of a man who had a really interesting life. At one point in his life, he actually bought the Broadmoor. But you know what? That never came up at the funeral. Never came up. You know what came up? His generosity, his love for people, his faith, his commitment to his church and to the cause of Christ in the world. There was one story so moving. It really moved me. Um, at the funeral, a young man stood up and he talked about how um, he had grown up, this, this man, well, in his 30s probably now, but um, he had grown up, his parents were missionaries with Young Life. And the man who died, Ted, he had, uh, he had heard of his family and that um, his parents were missionaries with Young Life, and he heard that the father was tragically killed in a car accident. And Ted reaches out to this family he doesn't even know, to this recently widowed mom, and he says, I hear you have an oldest son. I would like to be a father figure to him because he doesn't have a dad anymore. So the mom is like, um, I'm going to be back around to check on you, <laughs> you know, probably. But, um, but that man stood up at the funeral and he said, he took me on a father-son retreat. He showed up at major events in my life. He was at my graduation didn't even know, didn't even know this family, but just heard that the dad had died and heard that there was an oldest son. And that's the kind of stories that get told at a funeral. Nobody mentioned his wealth, and he had some. <laughs> Nobody mentioned his power. Nobody mentioned some of the famous connections of people who he knew. Nobody mentioned any of that. But they mentioned his character. And they mentioned, like, some of these choices, these decisions he had made. And you could just sense how he had, now I just imagine him sitting there at his computer reading this, like, you know, story of missionary father tragically dying. And he's got an oldest son. And uh, I'm, I'm going to reach out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one to say, like, hey, can I be a father figure in that young boy's life? Imagine, like, what stories do you want told about you? Because as Annie Dillard says, you know, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days, that's a series of decisions. So can we pause, like, create a little bit of space to prayerfully, before God, ask some good questions of the decisions that we face. Because these decisions, you know, financial, professional, relational, over time they, be, they kind of become like a permanent part of your story. And they're either stories you want to tell or they're stories you hope no one will ever tell. And if you're, like, thinking, I have not written a very good story. I am not writing a very good story. Remember, it's just a chapter. And sometimes the very best stories are turnaround stories. Some of the very best stories are stories of people overcoming or people plodding one foot in front of the other and not 
ever given up? Some of the stories that inspire us most are, are these stories of staying the course, of being faithful, of working through struggle, and sometimes it's long. And so if you're like, I'm not writing it, it's okay. If I could, it might just be like, this is just a chapter. This is just a chapter. So may we decide today, like no matter what hand we're dealt, no matter what things come our way, sometimes very unwanted, may we decide to do our part to choose, you know, to have the courage to, to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and to prayerfully before God create a little space to just say, am I being honest with myself? What story do I want to write here? And may you always sense that God is with you and in you and for you today and every day. Let's pray together as we close. God, thank you so much for this good group of people. Thank you for the way you have already been working in and through the story of each of their lives. Thank you for the incredible stories that I just bear witness to in the lives of this community already. And God, we just pray that your spirit would bring about more and more incredible stories of your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you help us to create a little bit of space with you in prayer to let the snow globe snow settle within us and to hear how you might be leading us in the things that we're facing today, we pray. Amen.